Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Red Star Radio podcast brought to you by the Marx Engels Lenin Institute. And this is going to be dedicated to the term cultural Marxism. Now, we've waded into these troubled waters before, uh, particularly on the previous iteration of the show, where I did a show with Layla, my former co-host on critical race theory. We've also examined gender ideology and, of course, uh, drugs and drug prohibition, drug legalization under capitalism and what that means. Also, temperance, uh, why communists should be anti-drug. All of these things are related to the usage of the term cultural Marxism by members of various different both online and offline political tendencies, which would be, I would say, largely best described as classical liberals. That's what I would describe people like Ben Shapiro as. That's what I would describe Jordan Peterson as. That's what really someone like Peter Hitchens ultimately is. He's a classical English liberal. And all of these three I mentioned because they are prominent at the moment in using the term cultural Marxism and putting forward a very particular worldview related to that term, i.e. their opposition to that term. So what I want to do in these episodes that I'm going to be doing on this term is break down where it comes from, historically speaking, what are its roots in both its relation to actual Marxism and how it is completely divorced from Marxism, its roots within reactionary discourse over a century ago, the truth and the mythology around that, and where it has been built up and how it has been built up over the last particularly 60 or so years after World War II in particular. And the picture I'm going to be painting here is one that is not going to be that of the typical leftist take on this, which is to just say that Peterson, Shapiro, Hitchens are all just clueless reactionaries, that there's nothing in what they say at all. What I'm going to be talking about is how what people like Hitchens, who I'll go into in more depth later, but briefly here, he claims that most of the politicians and governments since the 1970s in Britain, including Thatcher, were one shade or another of what he calls Euro-communism, which is often his stand-in for cultural Marxism, and how he claims that uh, Keir Starmer, for instance, is a radical leftist. So we're going to be dealing with that. Going to be looking at how, what, when people like Hitchens present uh, his evidence as to why the various governments that have existed since the 1960s and 70s in Britain have been Euro-communist to some description, what he's basing that on. And what I'm going to be arguing is that it comes from a certain reality. What Hitchens says does have a root in actual real-world problems and phenomenon. But, of course, because Hitchens is a reactionary, and all liberals are reactionaries, by the way, to one degree or another, because they are defending a decaying and out-of-date system in capitalism, so Hitchens, as a reactionary, as an avowed reactionary, can have some success, and I've acknowledged this before in the program when looking at his work on drugs, in describing some of the anti-social aspects of 
government policy that has been pursued since the 1960s under the name of liberalization or liberation in some respects. So there is a root of what Hitchens says, which is a reality. There is some reality in the critiques that he puts forward. Where he and others go wrong is, of course, they fundamentally seek to, and this is more true of people like Shapiro, but it's also true of Hitchens, they seek to redeem capitalism somehow by taking the negative elements that they identify as being anti-social trends, signs of social disintegration, signs of cultural rot. They take all of that and they lump it into their more general analysis, which is anti-communist. And the anti-communist worldview that they all have, these classical liberals, whether it's Shapiro, Peterson, Hitchens, to varying degrees of sophistication. And then more broadly than that, you get the various characters in the podcast world, like uh, absolute chances, like Constantine Kissin, who, as somebody pointed out in the Telegram group recently that we have, that man must have complete contempt for his audience with the shit that he spins for them. But that's a slight digression for now. What is being built up, though, around this term cultural Marxism, which is lumped in with anti-communism and a increasing anti-China hysteria, both in the United States and Britain these days, is this idea that the culture and the institutions of Britain and the United States have gone rotten, but they've gone rotten because of this amorphous cultural Marxist and communist and Chinese influence. And this is all lumped together with things like the COVID response and any other phenomena that has occurred recently. All these various different shades of liberals claiming that this is all basically communism in action. And of course, this is an old trick, but with more modern clothing. So we're going to be delving into all of this as we go through these programs. Now, we're going to be starting off, as I said, with a look at where this term ultimately originates. And there's been some claims made by leftists in recent days, and this has been said many times before, regarding the use of cultural Marxism as a term by anti-Semitic thinkers, by the Nazis themselves in the 1920s and 30s. So we're going to start there with a look at that and is there any validity to the way in which the modern leftists present this as being an extension essentially of Nazi thought? Now let's begin here and first thing to say is that the development of the European and North American socialist movement prior to of course the big split in 1914 was accompanied of course by a reaction from the ruling class in the form of various different propaganda methods to try and make it look as if socialism was an alien or foreign imposition. If you go to, for instance, the People's History Museum in Manchester, where I live, you can see on the walls there and some of the displays examples of anti-socialist propaganda from the early part of the 20th century. The socialist is usually portrayed as some sort of foreign usually Jewish type figure, who is, of course, trying to corrupt the simple British worker who just wants a fair day's pay.
pay for a fair day's work, etc., etc. And this is very common. This is not just the British ruling class that engaged in this propaganda. French, German, Spanish, Italian, American. All of these capitalists, of course, tried to show to their working class that socialism was foreign, it was alien, it was something which didn't belong anywhere, which is why, of course, they tried to associate it with Jews. Now, this, of course, is a very common tactic. It is something which was even applied to liberalism itself in the early period with uh, various different reactionary thinkers in the late 18th century arguing that this had no place in the Germanic cultures, it had no place in French culture, etc., etc. And you can think of people like Joseph de Maistre and other French reactionaries arguing that the whole French Revolution was basically a horrific uh, plot by the English to decay and destroy French society. Every ruling class, when threatened with a new and rising class which comes to contend with them for power, seeks to prove to the subordinate classes that the whole idea is imported from elsewhere, usually from either an enemy state or some unwanted and despised minority who's bringing it in. So none of this is new. None of it is even unique to capitalism, I would argue. It's just in capitalism, of course, due to mass literacy and mass politics that gets born throughout the 19th century and fully manifests in the 20th century, you see that, of course, the propaganda has to become more crude on the one level and yet more mass-produced and yet more sophisticated. And, of course, that's why you see the propaganda machine in the United States, Britain and other imperialist nations merge with the advertising industry to create more subtle kinds of propaganda. Now, where does this relate to cultural Marxism? Cultural Marxism is a term which starts to be used in the 20s and it comes from fascistic thinkers, fascist thinkers. And what it is originally meant to be about is when expressed by people like Joseph Goebbels, who as well as being culture minister was the chief propagandist for the Nazis and was actually disturbingly good at his job, so much so that many capitalist countries adopted his methods. But what he used to talk about in his speeches in the 20s and the 30s, and Hitler would touch on these themes as well, but they're much more well-developed, of course, in Goebbels's speeches and writing, is the idea that in Germany in the 1920s, and of course the central, or one of the most central tenets of the ideology of the German Nazis was this idea that Germany had been betrayed from within in 1918 and that it had been on the verge of or capable of winning the war against Britain and France and the United States. And that there was an internal revolt, of course. There was the German Revolution, which overthrew the Kaiser and ended the war. And the Nazi explanation of all of this was that this was an act of calculated betrayal, that the workers and the masses had been misled by Bolshevik agitators, and of course this was linked together with Judaism in their rhetoric. It was said that this was all a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy that had undermined the greater power of the German Reich and had brought it low through misleading the masses and leading them away from Kaiser and flag and fatherland, etc. 
And this was the line adopted by the Nazis, and it's a complete fantasy, of course. In reality, the German imperialists were losing the war and losing it badly by 1918. Their big final offensive in the earlier part of 1918 petered out and their supplies were lacking, their economy was falling apart, and the reason why the population rebelled and the sailors of the Baltic fleet mutinied was because essentially the people were on the edge of starvation and the German imperial general staff insisted on continuing the war to the last German or at least the last German proletarian. Then they'd get to the petty bourgeoisie and after that they'd think about surrendering. But militarily they were facing disaster and it was very convenient for people like Ludendorff and Hindenburg to seize upon this myth that oh, well, we would have won if it wasn't for the damn Reds and the damn Jews. This became popularized by the Nazis and other equally right-wing groups in the 1920s, like the DNVP and the DVP, other parties that were very similar to the Nazis in terms of being these ultra-reactionary nationalist parties. Eventually, the Nazis would go on to absorb these other uh, reactionary parties in the later 20s and early 30s, forcibly or otherwise. The point about the cultural side of things, though, is that Goebbels and the other Nazi propagandists, people like the Strasser brothers and others, when they were talking about the cultural side of things, would link this to the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. They say that not only had Germany been humiliated from uh, within by betrayal, it had been humiliated from without by the Versailles Peace Treaty, which did contain a great deal of humiliation for Germany and was a mistake by the British and the French imperialists which the American imperialists would learn from in 1945 and seek not to repeat. So they pick upon this very real issue which is that Germany has been destroyed and humiliated. They come up with a fantasy about why this has happened and within that is of course the cultural side of things. And, of course, this is where we have to talk about Berlin as this centre of avant-garde artistry, breakthrough artistry in terms of cinema, the work of Fritz Lang, F.W. Murnau, the Berlin jazz scene, all of this existing in this uh, capital of a reduced and humiliated Germany. Of course, this example of what the Nazis identified as anti-German anti-Germanic culture, degenerate culture, i.e. jazz, inferior culture that was coming in to pollute the German nation. This all had to be explained somehow, and it was explained as another part of the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy that was the cultural side of things. It was designed to undermine the foundations of German culture to further destroy the German nation. This is what Goebbels was selling to people. So this is in part where the idea of cultural Marxism, or as it was described at the time, cultural Bolshevism was coming from. This idea that the communists, and with them of course the Jews, as the Nazis always expressed it, were conspiring to undermine Germany even further by hollowing it out from by within, by spreading this degenerate culture. And this is all part of the rhetoric of the Nazis in the 1920s. So when leftists today say, well, how the people, 
the people I call classical liberals, the people that the leftists would call right-wingers, how these people like Shapiro and Peterson and Peter Hitchens and others present cultural Marxism is similar to the way that Goebbels and the Nazi leaders presented cultural Bolshevism back in the day. Now, again, I'm going to be saying this quite a lot. There's an element of truth in there in the, the way in which this is used is similar, but I would not go so far as to say that the people who are making usage of the term cultural Marxism are doing it in a vulgar and anti-Semitic way in the same way that the Nazis were. I have read and listened to a lot of all of these thinkers I've mentioned before and people considerably lesser than them and I would say that they aren't using it in an anti-Semitic way at this stage. What they're doing is they are adapting the term cultural Marxism around similar needs to that which reactionary thinkers have always had when looking at the problems in society created by capitalism. And what this is, is of course, as I mentioned in the introduction, a manifestation of anti-communism, specifically because these reactionary thinkers have to find ways to deal with the glaring problems of decaying British and American capitalism. And of course, they can't go near the material explanations. They can't go near the contradictions of capitalism or a Marxist analysis because these people are anti-communists. They're looking to propagandize ways in which the system has decayed and declined without going near any of that, whilst actively attacking all of that. And that way in presenting things necessitates them going down similar paths to what other reactionary thinkers have gone down in the past. That doesn't mean that these people are all the next iteration of Goebbels. There's different layers of reactionaries. These people are all reactionaries, just in the same way that, you know, Owen Jones is a reactionary or, you know, Will Self is a reactionary. These are two hideous British media personalities, by the way, if you don't know who they are. But there's different layers of reactionaries. There's different types of reactionaries. Not everything is, has to be about Nazism. Nazism is something very specific. Fascism is something very specific that the ruling class will employ at certain moments when their system is in danger and they need to have a radical reinforcement of their system. So... We need to get away from this idea that all aspects of reactionary thought are elements of Nazism. The reality is they're all elements of capitalism. And you could apply that, as I said, from the Nazis all the way through to the Social Democrats. They're all manifestations of the politics of capitalism, the politics of imperialism in the case of Britain, America, and the Western European nations. So let's move on now to look at some of the claims that these people make and how these are related to the question specifically of culture. What the likes of Shapiro, in particular him and those associated with him in the United States claim, is that the left, in inverted commas, is using these culture war, as he would describe it, issues to undermine the fabric of American society because, of course, he would argue that this is their way to undermining capitalism. And similar to that, you find the likes of Hitchens and others like him in Britain 
arguing that the left has pursued this radical social agenda since the 1960s, which is all about hatred of Britain, as he would put it, hatred of British institutions, a desire to undermine and destroy British institutions. And this is the war that is being waged by what he identifies as the Euro-communists. The similarity between the different forms of reactionary arguments is that they seek to present these social changes that have taken place since the, at least the 1960s as being part of a coherent attempt to destroy the nation as a whole. Now, again, we have to go back to the fact that there are elements of truth in what they say, but of course it's all distorted. So when Hitchens says that oh, the left hates Britain, the left wants to destroy Britain, there are those on the British left about whom that can be described as being true, or at least rhetorically true. So there are those like the various forms of Trotskyism, the Socialist Workers' Party, which the old joke that my grandfather used to tell was, it's not socialist, there aren't any workers in it, and it's not much of a party. And others like them out there in the, what I would call the institutional left in Britain, do often ape this kind of rhetoric and do embrace the latest, what is called an internet terminology, current thing, and turn it into some grand crusade against white supremacy or something. And so when Hitchin says there's this group of leftists who are all in academia and in politics and in media who hate this country and want to take every possible opportunity to denigrate it and its people, well, those people, those groups do exist inside the politics and culture of Britain and in the United States itself. If you listen to my recent discussion with Carlos Garrido of Midwestern Marx, you'll have heard him talk about something that he has taken from Dimitrov in his in latest book, which you heard us discuss, where Dimitrov's talking about the need for communists to avoid national nihilism. National nihilism is what much of the left in Britain and the United States has embraced, particularly that which is obsessed with hunting down phantom white supremacists in every corner, uh, denigrating the entire past, dismissing the working class of Britain and the United States as being hopelessly reactionary and incapable of delivering a revolution. Again, those people exist in the form of the SWP in Britain, in the form of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, the laughably entitled uh, party, that is, uh, in the United States. They all engage in this kind of rhetoric. So when the classical liberals, shall we say, engage in their rhetoric about this being about a bunch of leftists who wish to destroy the countries, who hate the countries, well, there's elements of truth in that. But what's also true about these organizations, both the PSL in the United States and others like them, and the SWP in the case of Britain, is that these are political organizations which are also intimately tied into the system itself. Now, the SWP in Britain, who meet all the descriptions that Hitchens likes to throw out about this radical left, anti-Britain tendency, they are the institutional left in Britain. They are an institutional left. And by that, I mean they are a form of left-wing politics which appears on its surface to be very radical, 
has all the revolutionary slogans. But in reality, it is dependent upon the institutions either of the British state itself, but more particularly the institutions of the trade union movement and the trade union hierarchy in this country, the leaders, the bureaucracies of them, they're all incorporated into the management systems of the British capitalist state. And the SWP and institutions and parties a lot smaller than them orbit these like small planetoids orbiting a sun. They get a great deal of funding from the trade union leadership to pursue various different activities through front groups such as Stand Up to Racism and ultimately what they serve as is kind of recuperators of the system and by that I mean that with the SWP and the PSL in the United States as well what they serve to do is to bring in specifically younger people mainly students who get radicalized and look for a way to express it usually find it in the form of those who are most active on university campuses and in our case that's the SWP and they take them along they fill them full of radical sounding slogans but ultimately what their political activity is designed around is bringing them back to the Labour Party in the end in our case Keir Starmer's Labour Party in the case of the PSL in the United States Joe Biden's Democrats and we've covered this extensively on the program before but it's worth reiterating what these institutional leftists do is start off, it goes in a circle. You start off screaming and denouncing the system, but in vague terms, usually focused on one particular area of the system. But when you break down that critique, what it comes down to is an agreement with all the terms of politics as expressed by the left-hand side of the bourgeois political system. So in the case of the British Trotskyites, it's you're not doing enough, Keir Starmer, about supporting gender ideology. You're not doing enough about the climate change narrative without ever actually interrogating, of course, the reality of that. You're not doing enough about mandating COVID vaccines or something else like that. And so what all of that is, is asserting in more radical and strident language the agenda or parts of the agenda of the left side of the British political system same roles played by the PSL and others in the United States for the American political system and then taking these younger people that you've radicalized or that you've you've tapped into their radicalism to bring them into your party and ultimately serving as a recuperator of the system because ultimately you're going to push them towards endorsing the Labour Party or endorsing the Democrats because the way in which these institutional left organizations have created these various different expressions of their so-called beliefs in recent years is it's all on the basis of supporting the left end of ruling class politics. It's not about proletarian politics at all it's nothing to do with it. It's all about supporting, ultimately, the Labour Party or the Democrats, but doing so in a way which appears radical and which 
they will denounce and denounce and denounce the system right up to the point where the election comes. Then it's time to vote for Keir Starmer. Then it's time to vote for Joe Biden. And this isn't new either. The Trotskyites in Britain have been doing this since the late 1960s when they were much more radical and they actually had working class members of their organisation. And this has always been present in their politics. So the element of truth in what the classical liberals say is that there is a section of the institutional left in Britain and the United States which does spend a lot of time shouting and screaming about these countries being irredeemably racist, about all their institutions being based on white supremacy, about everything being sexist, racist, um, heteronormative, all the buzzwords from academia you want to pick out of a hat. But this is not about undermining the system. This is ultimately about them serving as caretakers for the system, serving as gatekeepers for the system, serving as people who corral the disenchanted and radicalized students in particular back into the system by voting for the Labour Party. And of course, what is the Labour Party? Now, Peter Hitchens would claim that it's this radical leftist Euro-communist party led by the ex-Pabloite Trotskyite Keir Starmer. Of course, this fundamentally misunderstands what Keir Starmer is, I would argue. And of course, it fundamentally misunderstands the consistency with the Labour Party. The fact that the Labour Party leadership, as Starmer himself argues, has been consistent since the 1920s in favour of, of course, British imperialism, in favour of the various imperialist wars that the British state has fought, and of course in favour of the hyper-exploitation of those countries which were once British colonial possessions and some of which are still in the position of being subordinated by British imperialism to this day. And that is, of course, the entirely consistent picture with the Labour Party and the fact that the Labour Party has been based on the Labour aristocracy, as I've said before, when talking about commodified rebellions in a previous episode. So the Labour Party is entirely consistent in that it's been accused of being anti-British by reactionaries who are associated with the Conservative Party and other tendencies more to the right of them for over a 100 years. But consistently, at every single turn, what it actually does is it serves British imperialism in terms of its actions when it's in office, and it serves British imperialism when it's out of office as it captures oppositional energy and crushes it. So what I argue is that when the various different classical liberals come up with these terms about the left hates Britain, the left is negative about Britain. Yes, all of that exists. But at the same time, connected to all of that noise, that negative noise, that national nihilism is, of course, the fact that this institutional left serves to bring people back into one of the two major parties in the British or the American system. And this is all part of the political ecosystem of this stage of decaying imperialism. Now, what these parties represent, of course, is something quite interesting, because when, again, to turn back to Hitchens, because he's the most intelligent writer about this particular phenomenon on the right, when he talks about them being radical leftists, about being all about destroying the family, destroying British institutions, of course, what he's talking about isn't 
a proletarian politics at all. What he's talking about is this form of 60s radicalism, and which, of course, he was a part of, along with his late brother, Christopher Hitchens, when they were both members of the International Socialists, the forerunners of the Socialist Workers' Party back in the mid to late 1960s, where for at least a section of that organization and others like them who were mainly Trotskyites or in later days, some of them became, I'm using heavy air quotes here, Maoists, that how you can be a Maoist in the West is, well, a matter best left to the imagination. The politics of those groups were anti-communist, they were anti-Soviet, they were actually for quite a while anti-Chinese, anti-Mao, though they got a bit confused during the Cultural Revolution, but they were generally very anti-communist. All of these Trotskyite groups were. The Maoist groups of the later period were anti-communist as well. They were anti-Soviet, they picked up the ludicrous ultra-left view of the Chinese communists in the 60s, which is the Soviet Union was social imperialist. So this milieu that Hitchens comes out of and ultimately goes on his own long march to the right, this was exactly the thing that he's describing in that its politics were, whilst with a dressing of Marxism, a linguistic nod to Marxism, was fundamentally a rabidly libertarian individualist left that was all about really triggering the conservatives, triggering your parents. And that's why, of course, they did things like insulting the monarchy and uh, denigrating British institutions, denouncing British imperialism, or at least the old form of British imperialism. Trotskyites struggled with the newer form of British imperialism that was practiced after 1945. As always, you can make a good career for yourself on the British or American institutional left if you loudly and incorrectly denounce the previous forms of imperialist activity and exploitation. You can make a good career for yourself doing that. Just look at the critical race theorists, for instance. So this form of 60s radicalism, where does that come from and how does it reflect down to the national nihilism we have today? Well, I'm going to use as my examples here the influences of the Italian and French revolts in the late 1960s. And what happens there is that there is a brief coming together between the radicalized students who are from the upper end of the working class and the petty bourgeoisie, and in some cases the bourgeoisie themselves, and the mass of the working class in France and in Italy as well. Though in France it reached a more definitive and sort of spectacular conclusion, in Italy the process ran on for longer. But what happens in both instances, as I've talked about before on this program, is that the institutional power of the French and Italian communist parties was mobilized in both instances to stymie a revolutionary action. And in France and in Italy, there were real opportunities for revolutionary action. And the leadership of the French and Italian communist parties consciously chose to quash that, 
to seek bargains with the French and Italian ruling class, who were, of course, delighted to make a bargain with them at that particular stage, given that that would take out of action large elements of the working class who took their line from the French and Italian Communist parties. This, of course, left the radicalized students high and dry, because without the proletariat, there's no revolution. And so many of these radicalized students spent the later part of the 1960s and into the 70s in various forms of bitter search for the next revolutionary agent. The working class had let them down. The communist parties had betrayed them. Again, there's some truth in this. And so they concluded wrongly that the working class was no longer the revolutionary subject. And this is, of course, derived from earlier work by people like Herbert Marcuse, we've mentioned before, who in One Dimensional Man and later in his essay, entitled An Essay on Liberation, he questioned the central role of the working class within uh, Marxism, but specifically within the creation of revolutionary movements, or the proletariat being the centre, being the subject of politics. And Marcuse and others, Pulantzis was a later adopter of this theory, another name we've come to before, they sought to substitute the mass of the working class with other oppressed groups. So with lumpens, lumpen proletariat, with the racial minorities, those excluded on the basis of skin color by the United States ruling class, those who were outside of the capitalist system, excluded from it. Those were the people and groups in society that a lot of these radicalized students were thought would be the instigators of revolution. Marcuse tried to nuance his view in his essay on liberation where he says, well, maybe the proletariat's still the center of politics, but it needs to be ignited. This potential needs to be ignited by other groups. And this is a view, by the way, that many Trotskyites still hold to this day. You can read this view in the pages of not just the SWP's newspaper, but the In Defense of Marxism website and others. This view that, well, the proletariat itself won't move. It needs to be pushed into it. The trigger needs to be the students or it needs to be something else because the proletariat is hopelessly incorporated within the system. And this view was very common at the time. Again, it's an understandable point of view if you've gone through the experience of the betrayal of the communist leaders in Italy and France, but it's an incorrect view. Poulantzis, in his work in the early 70s, does a similar thing, where he identifies other groups in society that will play the role of revolutionary agents. He identifies women's groups, minority sexualities, uh, environmentalists, as all being part of this coalition that will be required and this, of course, leads Poulantzis down the revisionist and then the reformist line that he was to take towards the end of his life. And this all is the background to the degeneration of all these former Marxist tendencies. And, of course, how they come to embrace all these different current things as a substitute for the proletariat. So whether it's 
feminism, various forms of bourgeois feminism or petty bourgeois feminism, whether it's gender ideology later on or whether it's the green movement, all of this is seized upon by the opportunist leftists who are, of course, as I said, these are institutional lefts now. The way they have evolved, that has made them part of the institutions of bourgeois politics. This is all stemming from this period, and it all ultimately comes together with changes in the communist parties that went from being these revolutionary parties in the time of the Second World War and immediately afterwards to slowly becoming, of course, Khrushchevite revisionist parties from the later 1950s. As I've said before, in our case in Britain, we beat them by several years and our Communist Party became revisionist even before Stalin died. So the revisionist parties are also changing during this time. Many of them have now become, in terms of their leadership, almost identical to the previous parties of the Second International. So that by the time we reach the early 1980s, you have the Italian and the French and the Spanish Communist parties, with, of course, the British as a smaller but enthusiastic section of this, all going down the route of openly embracing social democratic reformism and using arguments like the Spanish Communist leader Santiago Carrillo or the Italian leader Enrico Berlinguer that now democracy, I'm using the inverted commas there again, in this case we mean bourgeois democracy, was now something that was not going to go away, that it was something that the bourgeoisie themselves had to respect. And the proletariat could do a long march through the institutions, shall we say, to win power this way. And it was through the competition within bourgeois elections, through the growth of communist media and cultural institutions, that the arguments would be won now. It wasn't going to be about revolution anymore. And of course, what happened with that? Well, it doomed the Spanish Communist Party to ever-increasing irrelevance and to just being an extension of the Spanish social democracy. And it destroyed the Italian Communist Party outright. So good job there, lads. But let's bring this back to the cultural Marxism question. Again, how is this relevant? Well, what the more sophisticated anti-communists argue is that this Euro-communist approach to politics is something which is still active, even though all of the Euro-communist parties have declined into complete irrelevancy or disappeared entirely, such as the old Communist Party of Great Britain, which split between its more radical wing, its working class wing, and its openly revisionist wing, Euro-communist wing, and that split destroyed the party in the late 1980s. So what the anti-communists of today argue is that that approach is still being used by these various different kinds of leftists that are floating around out there who are undermining the culture and undermining our traditional institutions. So now I'm going to talk about, of course, the mistakes of those Euro-communist leaders and how their vision of politics was essentially a gigantic bastardization of Gramsci in order to justify their own capitulation to revisionism and reformism. Now Gramsci is, along with Rosa Luxemburg, the most 
misunderstood and ill-used Marxist of the 20th century because what both of them have been used for is to attack communism and Marxism by various opponents of it because the way in which their work has been presented in the case of Rosa Luxemburg by the second international opportunists ironically enough because those are the people who ordered her death and in Gramsci's case by the Khrushchevite revisionists who ran the Italian Communist Party and then the wider worldwide Khrushchevite revisionists they deliberately misinterpreted his work and of course it's a work that's open to misinterpretation because of the way it is written what do I mean by this if you look at almost anything in the prison notebooks that relates to questions of revolution questions of well, an analysis of the capitalist state you see that often what Gramsci is doing is he's writing in very cryptic terms he's avoiding explicit references a lot of the time to the Soviet Union the Bolshevik Revolution to anything that could of course fall foul of the prison censor which is why when he's writing things like the modern prince and when he's writing things like the state and civil society what you find is he's quoting an awful lot from Italian sources so he's quoting an awful lot from Italian daily papers at the time because of course those are all allowed under the fascist system and he's quoting a lot from Italian government papers statistics that are formally produced by the Italian state and he's doing this as I said to avoid the prison censor and so because he's not being explicit in terms of stating how he believes the revolutionary process should unfold and he's talking an awful lot in state and civil society about how the institutions of civil society are constructed and what they're there to do and of course he describes them at one stage as the fortresses and earthworks that stand behind the bourgeois state now when he's doing this analysis what Gramsci is seeking to do is illuminate albeit of course in a slightly coded way to get around the censorship regime the way in which bourgeois ideology is created and replicated the way it is used by the ruling class to place their own view of the world their own ideology often within the consciousness and to dominate the consciousness of even the working class but especially of course and especially important is to continue dominating the minds of the petty bourgeoisie and I would argue the upper layers of the working class are the most important those in leadership positions so that's what he's doing now because he's writing in slightly vague terms though having read um, the modern prince and state and civil society I don't think it's that vague to be honest I think maybe the prison sense just wasn't too bright but because he's writing in terms which aren't explicit what this enabled the opportunists and revisionists in the Italian Communist Party to do when they were of course in possession of Gramsci's prison notebooks they were the first to publish them in the 1950s and of course the emphasis that they chose to put on it was one that would embrace their own political practice and so they argued and the British Communist Party whose publishing house 
put out Gramsci's prison notebooks in Britain. This was the similar emphasis that was given, that what they were doing, of course, was that they were conquering the fortresses and earthworks of the civil society in Italy. And this is something which British communist leaders would use to justify themselves as well, because they'd essentially just become a left adjunct to the Labour Party the same way that the Trotskyites are these days. And their intellectuals who picked this up, particularly in the 1980s, argued over and over again that, well, revolution's out of the question, and this again relates back to the Euro-communists, what we need to do is we need to go through the institutions, we need to win these institutions, we need to win the educational and the cultural battle in order to fight back against Thatcherism, that kind of thing. And that's the only way we're going to do it because revolution is out of the question in these long-established democracies. And that's how they chose to argue the point, specifically, though, in the 1970s and 1980s. And so what you end up with is the 60s radicals who'd gone to various forms of Trotskyism and Maoism in the 70s coming back together again with the revisionist leaders who they denounced in the late 60s as traitors to cluster around the Euro-communist approach to politics in the 1980s informed by this bastardization of Gramsci. They basically take as the same, they do the same thing with Luxembourg. They take like a few lines out of context from Gramsci and then claim that this backed up their essentially revisionist and reformist position. Now, I would encourage everybody listening to this to read Gramsci themselves and make up their own minds. But in my view, once you've got a knowledge of Gramsci and his politics and what he was doing with the early Italian Communist Party and his views as they were expressed to his political collaborators who still managed to stay in touch with him when he was in prison. The man remained a revolutionary who remained a supporter of the Soviet Union and was actually opposed to Trotsky and Trotskyism in its earliest period. But of course, when you die having left a collection of writings which are open enough to be misinterpreted, well, essentially you have your voice stolen, as was the same with Luxembourg. But I want to read one quote here, which I think gives us a good indication of what Gramsci actually believed in. And if you reflect upon this together with his work on the intellectuals, you can see that the opportunist and the revisionist embrace of him as part of Euro-communism in the 80s was entirely wrong. The quote reads as follows. Vanguards without armies to back them up commandos without infantry or artillery these two are transpositions from the language of rhetorical heroism though vanguard and commandos as specialized functions within complex and regular organisms are quite another thing the same distinction can be made between the notion of intellectual elites separated from the masses and that of intellectuals who are conscious of being linked organically to a national popular mass in reality one has to struggle against the above-mentioned degenerations, the false heroisms and pseudo-aristocracies, and simulate the formation of homogeneous compact social blocks, which will give birth to their own intellectuals, their own commandos, their own vanguard, who in turn will react upon those blocks in order to develop them. So, that, in my view, 
is a proper reading done by Gramsci of Lenin's theory of the vanguard party. So when he says here, and he's talking about vanguards without armies to back them up, what he's talking about is essentially what Lenin talks about in what is to be done. What Gramsci's talking about there, though, he's using his analysis of Garibaldianism and the Italian nationalist movements of the 19th century to make this point. He's not mentioning Lenin or what is to be done or the Soviet Union for the reasons we've already gone into. But what he's clearly saying there is that the vanguard without the workers is nothing. Without the proletariat, this elite doesn't mean a thing. Without an organic connection to it, it doesn't mean a thing. And then when he's talking about the intellectuals there, you have to bear in mind his earlier essay I say earlier, it's earlier in the book that I've got, about the intellectuals and the organic intellectuals of the working class. Now, what Gramsci's doing there is he's elucidating further, and this is why I think Gramsci is such a valuable asset to Marxist-Leninists, is that he's taking the themes that are drawn by Lenin, that are sketched out by Lenin in what is to be done, and he's elaborating them further in terms of how this can be turned into revolutionary strategy into terms of building the revolutionary party so what he's talking about there is the need to have this constant organic link with the masses and also to develop intellectuals who are also embedded within the masses who are not separated from the masses who are not above the masses and that's how this passage and all of the modern prints has to be read and of course that was something that was it never or very rarely talked about by the Euro communists and the people who are even worse than them these days because it reveals the reality of Gramsci's politics which is that he remains a revolutionary he remains a Leninist dedicated to developing the Leninist theory in light of the experience of the failures of the Italian revolution and his own condition uh, in terms of his being imprisoned by the Mussolini regime but of course the Euro communists the opportunists the revisionists have taken the mere fact that Gramsci spoke in this way, in this way about state and civil society, about the usage of civil society by the bourgeoisie, that took that and completely distorted it into this basically an argument for a long march through the institutions uh, towards socialism. And of course the socialism aspects of that got junked a long time ago, as did any connection with the proletariat. So the left's bastardization of Gramsci in complete divorce from what Gramsci actually was writing about, about what he stood for, about his beliefs, about what his projects from the confines of his prison cell, the project that he was engaged in, that's been taken and then you get the reactionaries today looking at what the Eurocommunists said in the 80s and what the institutional left does now and saying, well, there's your cultural Marxism. Both sides of this debate are presenting to us bastardized forms of Gramsci, which can be easily dispelled by simply going back and reading the work of the man himself and being aware of the man's background as a committed Leninist, as a committed revolutionary. So this brings us to the conclusion of the first program in what will be a series of programs about cultural Marxism, its history, its usage, etc. And... What I've gone through in this episode shows that, first of all, that 
reactionary thought always seeks to locate the problems, the contradictions of capitalism as being anything other than the product of capitalism itself. Though, of course, some reactionaries who are slightly more clever will say that capitalism is something of a problem, but their emphasis will always be upon this being an external agent who has brought in or amplified problems that exist within the system in order to undermine British or American or Western civilizational institutions, shall we say, and that this is the action of foreign influences or communists who are working to corrode these fine societies from the inside out and looking to promote nihilism and cultural despair and aiding the collapse of the family and all these things that the classical liberals like Shapiro, Peterson, Hitchens and others talk about. That this has certain similarities with some of the ways in which the Nazis conducted themselves in terms of their rhetorical attacks upon the degeneracy of the interwar culture of Berlin and other German cities is correct. There are some similarities there in the way in which this is presented as being this grand communist conspiracy. In the case of the Nazis, they insisted it was a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. But at the same time, the way the modern left presents this as just simply an extension of that, and that anybody who's adopting this terminology is essentially a Nazi, this, of course, as is always the case, takes a certain amount of truth but then distorts it into the usual crude and overblown leftist attacks on their nominal opponents. And again, there's elements of truth in how both sides attack each other here. When the people on the right, as we've covered in this program, say that there are elements within Britain and the United States, these leftist political elements who are dedicated towards denigrating and rubbishing British and American history and institutions and destroying the family. There's an element of truth in that because these leftist groups do exist. My point is, and is my rejoinder, shall we say, that these leftist groups that are most loud and obnoxiously associated with such rhetoric, which I would call the rhetoric of national nihilism, these groups act as recuperators of the capitalist system, as support mechanisms for it, because they use this radical seeming rhetoric, this pseudo-revolutionary posturing that they do, to ultimately take largely students and younger people who are most exposed to these groups when they're at university, they take those people, fill their heads full of revolutionary-sounding rhetoric, which is ultimately just garbage, but then when the crunch comes, they push them back towards endorsing and embracing the left end of the bourgeois political system because this is where the politics of these groups has gone over the course of their development and 
wholesale degeneration over the last 60 years. And in the case of the Trotskyites, that element was always there, even in their most ultra-left period in the late 60s and early 70s, in, in the case of the SWP, they were still telling workers to go and vote for the Labour Party when the working class had had, had a belly full of the Labour Party and didn't want it to be any part of the answer to their problems anymore. So this claim from the people on the right that these leftists are undermining and destroying British society and institutions or American society and institutions is contradicted by the fact that they consistently support one of the two parties of imperialism in both of these countries. And in the case of Britain, this party, the Labour Party, has always been a rabid and enthusiastic supporter of British imperialism. So what is it that they're actually undermining? And the truth is that what they're engaging in is the kind of cultural radicalism that became popularized in the later 1960s and 1970s by groups like the International Socialists and other Trotskyite groups who were heavily influenced by Marcuse, who no longer saw the proletariat as being the subject of politics, as being the revolutionary agent, who sought to replace the proletariat with a variety of different other societal groups or causes, but who ultimately ended up folding back into and collaborating with the revisionist parties, the revisionist communist parties of Europe, especially, and Britain, who had become openly reformist by the early 1980s and who insisted that there would be no revolution, only a long march through the institutions. And so these 60s radicals, these revisionist organizations, do come together to perpetuate all kinds of reformist and opportunist ideology, which is linked to a lot of the stuff that gets people angry these days, like gender ideology or the kind of utterly pro-capitalist green politics you get. But all of that isn't designed to hollow out and destroy the British system or British institutions. It's designed to, and this is a, its objective effect, is to recuperate that system by essentially leading people who are initially disenchanted with it to embrace the left end of British bourgeois politics in the form of the Labour Party or American bourgeois politics in the form of the Democrats. So it's not undermining the system because the system needs those people in order to carry on functioning. What's actually being undermined and consistently destroyed is any attempt at a proletarian politics. And that's the purpose that that left ultimately serves. It's a left in service to capital. Because what, and again, I referenced the conversation I had recently with Carlos Garrido, what that left is doing by engaging in all this national nihilism, by adopting these out there and outre, rabidly individualist points of view, by bigging up things like gender ideology and Malthusian green politics and denouncing anybody who tries to do anything else as a fascist, what they are doing is essentially aiding the capitalist class. Whether they're doing it by design or not, that is the effect of what they are doing. And so Hitchens and others 
say that these people are undermining the system. No, these people are crucial for the support of the system. The system needs them because what the reactionaries, the open and honest reactionaries, don't want to acknowledge is, of course, what they are, what their politics is, is the mourning for a form of bourgeois rule that the bourgeois jettisoned at least as early as the 1950s. So by the time you get to the 1960s, it's becoming very risk-free to actually attack the antiquated forms of bourgeois rule. And now you can make a very good living in bourgeois academia taking heroic stands against things that ended 100 years ago and still looking rather radical in doing so. So this term, cultural Marxism, which the right claims is all about undermining and hollowing out our beloved institutions, our beloved Western civilization. No, it's the opposite is true. This national nihilism, this ultra-left language, which is actually opportunist in its actual political practice from the groups that produce it, this is all part of the support for the earthworks and the fortresses of bourgeois civil society in this particular phase of British and American capitalism. That is the reality of what is going on here. Now, this brings us to the conclusion of the first part of this examination of the term cultural Marxism. In the next part, I'm going to be talking about what Marxism actually is and how it's completely divorced from what the right describes as cultural Marxism and what the left's actual political praxis is in the modern era. So I hope you will be joining me again for that. Until then, I will leave you with a very appropriate piece of music. In the morning we built the city. In the afternoon walked through its streets. Evening saw us leaving. We wandered through our days as if they would never end. All of us imagined we had endless time to spend. We hardly saw the crossroads and small attention gave to landmarks on the journey from the cradle to the grave, cradle to the grave, cradle to the grave. Did you learn to dream in the morning? Abandon dreams in the afternoon. Wait without hope in the evening. Did you stand there in the traces and let them feed your lies? Did you trail along behind them wearing blinkers on your eyes? Did you kiss the foot that kicked you? Did you thank them for their scorn? Did you ask for their forgiveness for the act of being born? Act of being born, act of being born.